Hi, Abby and While She Naps listeners. We're here to tell you about our sewing podcast, Love to Sew. I'm Helen. I'm a sewing pattern designer. And I'm Caroline. I have an online fabric shop. Together, we host Love to Sew, where we talk all about sewing a handmade wardrobe and interview inspiring creatives in our community. Join us for discussions about perfectionism, how to use social media to connect with other sewists, and tools and techniques you need in your sewing practice. Love to Sew is an inclusive podcast for all skill levels with new episodes every Tuesday. You can find us wherever you download podcasts. Just search Love to Sew. See you there. Today's episode is brought to you by Eddie and Marion. Eddie and Marion is run by an independent hand screen printer and fabric designer from Sydney, Australia. Inspired by the modern quilting movement, Eddie and Marion strives to create fat quarters that are truly original, only available online or at selected events. See what's in store at eddieandmarion.com. Thank you so much, Eddie and Marion. And now, here's the show. to episode 120 of the Walshy Naps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Today, we're talking about blogging and writing a book with my guest, Florence Knapp. Florence is a quilter and a dressmaker. For over a decade, she's kept a blog, Flossy Tea Cakes, where she shares her adventures with a needle and thread and the life that goes on around her stitching. During this time, she's designed sewing patterns, and her work has been featured in various magazines, as well as in a book produced by the V&A Museum. Florence's early years were spent between England and Australia, where her childhood homes were filled with vibrant color and intense pattern. As an adult, she found quilt making offered the perfect canvas on which to continue to embrace these things, as well as to indulge her love for small-scale precision work through fussy cutting and English paper piecing. In May of 2018, her first book, Flossy Tea Cake's Guide to English Paper Piecing, will be published, and we're going to talk all about that book. So Florence Knapp, welcome. Hi, thank you for having me on the show. I'm so excited to talk to you. We've been blogging friends for yes. a long time now. Probably, so yeah, nearly a decade. I maybe. know, so and decade? it's yeah. it's so nice to talk to a blogging <laughs> friend for real. So it's always, yes, you too. yeah, like a magical moment when that happens. And since we live so far away, um, where are you right now? I'm in Boston, so where are you? So I'm about an hour outside um, London. Um, in I live in, it's quite a large town, quite old. Um, it's very green and it's got lots of cafes and restaurants. And, um, you know, it's it's got quite a kind of vibrant arts and music scene. Um, we have an annual music festival each year and things like that. It's, it's a nice place to live. Okay. And what's it called? It's called Tunbridge Wells. Okay, great. All right. Yeah. So since we live so far away, we've actually never, you know, met in person, but it's wonderful to meet you, you know, just talking with you is yeah. really great. So, um, so well, you, I feel like I know your voice far better than you probably know mine because <laughs> I listen to your podcast. So yeah, <laughs> people often say that to me. So, <laughs> um, so you were, when you were growing up, um, you said that you, you grew up in, in both England and Australia. What did your parents do for work? So my father worked in insurance and that was what ended up moving us around and then my mum became a homeopath when I was I think she started her training when I was about eight when we moved back from Australia um 
And yeah, so she did her training and that's what she did while I was growing up. And how did you spend your time? Like what were, what, what did you like doing when you were growing up? I, I always loved making things and I've no idea where they actually came from, but we used to have a, a chair in the living room where you could lift part of it up and it was just filled with fabrics. And I've, my mum didn't actually sew once she stopped needing to out of necessity um, when my mum and dad were first married. And so I've, I don't really know where the fabrics came from, but they were just there and I, I made things out of them. And I also kind of knitted glove puppets and things like that and did random stuff. So you had this chair that like was almost like a, like a storage compartment or something like that. It just reminds me of like a piano bench or something like that, right? Where It was kind of lower than that. And I don't know whether this is a false memory or whether it's true, but I, my memory of it is it had a huge cushion on it. And when you lifted it up, you could see that it used to be a commode because it had a, it had a big circle cut out of it. And um, so it's, it's quite funny that all my fabrics actually started off in a, <laughs> <laughs> in a toilet. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that is so funny. So you would take these fabrics out and just sort of try to play with them and make things out of them. Yeah. And then in the, in the, I think it was in the 1990s, possibly, there was a company called Laura Ashley. Did you have Laura oh, Ashley? Oh, yes. They were oh, no. super yeah. popular. I had a Laura Ashley bedspread when I was in high school and I thought it was okay. super awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So they used to, um, at one point, I remember them actually um, selling pre-cut hexagons and the instructions for English paper piecing. So my my first time of trying that was actually really early on, and I just remember not getting it at all, and that <laughs> that really not working. But it's it's I tried it many years before I actually kind of fell in love with it. Wow, that's really interesting. I had no idea that they had those sorts of kits, but I do have that memory of getting different craft kits and trying different crafts before I was ready to understand how to yes. do them or yeah. had the the patience to be able to really follow through and messing them up and feeling like I couldn't do them, but I wanted to do them and sort of, you know, being kind of frustrated and giving up. Yeah. So it's almost like f things having to find you at the right time in your life. I always think that about um, novels as well, that sometimes you can read a novel at a certain stage in your life and it means absolutely nothing to you. And then you'll come back to it 10 years later and you'll you'll totally get it. Yeah, gosh, that is true too. Okay, all right. So you had these uh, these loud. It's funny that that uh, English paper piecing though was like on your radar so <laughs> yes. early on because yeah. no, here really we are. Awesome. Yeah, with all these years later, and it, it's a huge impact on your life. So mm. all right. So you went to college. What did you um, think that you wanted to do? What did you study? I had no idea what I wanted to do. Um, I was I. I, it never really occurred to me that I could go and study the things that I love doing in my spare time. Um, and so I just picked the um, the things that I'd enjoyed studying most at school. So I went off and studied sociology at university and I was able to pull in some psychology modules with that. And I think probably fairly soon after pulling those modules in, I realized that I would have much preferred the psychology side of things. Um, and I really regretted not doing my degree in that. But it was, um, yeah, so it hasn't really related to what I've ended up doing at all, my degree. It's interesting how you said that um, it never occurred to you that you could study the things that you like to do in your spare time. I think that that's so, it's so true. And it's something to think through and, you know, with my own kids, talking to them about like, what is it that you are drawn to that you really love doing and sort of trying yes. to build a career around that and, you know, 
just the things that it doesn't feel like work, you know? I think, I'm wondering whether that's something that's changed with our generation of whether it's uh, all the people I see around me. And I think we're probably surrounding ourselves by people who love what they do in a way, aren't we? But a lot of the people around me really love what they do now. And I, I'm wondering whether there's more room for that because of the way the world is of how much easier it is to start your own business up in a way. Yeah, possibly. Yeah. I mean, it was also not an option for me, maybe because both of the things, both things that we both like to do were artistic. And um, it was certainly told to me, like, that is no way to build a career. <laughs> so so what, what did you study then? Um, I was a history major. Yeah. Okay. And it was like, you will not be an art, you know, do not do that. I, I took all the art classes that they offered in college and yeah. took all the art history classes as well. But it was like, that's absolutely not a career for you. So you better yeah. get a real education, you know. Has that been hard switching over to something. I mean, in in a lot of ways, I think it gave me all the tools and skills I needed to do whatever I wanted to do in the end. So it was probably a good thing because who could have predicted, right? Like down the road, what I do now. I mean, even this podcast, Mm. like that, nobody knew that that was coming. So yeah. Right. It gave yeah. you all the tools to do research and, you know, all the rest. Yes. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which is a good thing. Okay. So, so after college, um, uh, at some point you, you started this blog and, um, Flossie Tea Cakes and you've been blogging for a really long time. I mean, you started yeah. this blog in August of 2007. 2007 yeah. Was, yeah. So yeah. that's over a decade. It makes you like, you know, a really old blogger. <laughs> Yeah, and I don't know. I don't know about you, but I think at that time when um, certainly when I started blogging, I hadn't intended to make a business around it. And so when I chose my blog name, I really didn't think of it from the point of view of what do I, you know, what what you'd actually think of to call a business or anything like that. Um, And so I just chose the name that my my sister had called me that was actually um, based around a series of books that I'd read when I was when I was really young um and I probably wouldn't wouldn't have called it that if I'd have thought more about it or known known where it would go or that it would stick with me for so long yeah what do people think of I mean what what are the impressions now when you tell people oh I have a blog and they say what's it called I want to look it up or whatever (laughs) and you tell them it's called flossy tea cakes I mean what what happens next um I I think initially they seem to think that I'm something to do with cakes, which it would be a fairly sensible kind of conclusion to draw from that name. Um, so it's, it's I, I guess it's not the clearest of things, but I have had several people say to me, oh, I purely came to your site because I thought the name sounded interesting or because I remember the books um, from when I was younger. So, so I, I suppose it's, you know, you you just have to get on with it in a way, don't you? Yeah, I think names become abstracted. You know, I think of, um, there's a blogger that I've also, who's also been blogging forever, who I followed forever, Heidi Kenny, and her blog is called My Paper Crane. Um, and it has nothing oh, to yes, do. Oh, yes, yeah, yeah, so, I mean, she makes um, plush toys. It has nothing to do with paper cranes. And mm. obviously, my blog is called While She Naps. And yeah. it's, it's, I do think, in, in a way, it becomes abstracted in people's minds. Um, yes, But yeah. at the same time, have, have you thought of or have people suggested to you that you change the name over time? Um, I think I'd thought of it. But then there's a certain... I suppose in some ways I'm slightly resigned to it because that's um, it, it would feel almost like having to start again. And then when I came to 
write my book, one of the things my publisher was insistent on was that I did that the name was involved in the book title. Um, and so I guess that gave me a signal of, oh, the, the name actually matters to people more than maybe I thought it did. Yeah. Okay. So now it, now that it's on the title of your book, it's it's part of you forever. <laughs> That's <laughs> I it. Guess, yeah, no, I guess that does sit in stones. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, all right. So what made you, I mean, how did you discover blogs? I'm just wondering, like, you know, blogs in still in, I started mine in 2005. And I know that earlier, weren't you? Yeah. yeah, they, you know, nobody I knew, you know, knew about blogs, I read about blogs in the newspaper. And that's how I learned that there was such a thing as a blog. Okay. And I'm wondering how you knew that there were blogs and how you first discovered them. I think, um, from memory, I think one Christmas I was bought a book called The Crafter's Companion, and I can't quite remember who it was by, um, but it was a book where, and I think it mainly covered makers of plush toys and things like that, and it was, um, it did a profile on each of these women, because I think it was mainly women, and so it did a profile and it put a link to a blog at the bottom, and um, and I think I followed those, and then eventually I found my way to Anna Maria Horner's site and, and Heather Bailey. Um, and maybe a, maybe Molly Chicken as well, who was blogging. Oh at my that gosh, point. Molly yeah. Chicken! Oh, <laughs> you're bringing back memories. Yeah. Okay, mm-hmm. um, and and just really, it kind of felt like, oh wow, there are actually people out there who are motivated by the same thing as me, and you know, want to put things in color order. And um, I was think um, I've I think I said once on my blog about wanting to um, wanting to take the Tana lawn. Um, liberty print um, scraps from the thing I was making and leave them out so that the birds could make a bird's nest. And I think there, it it was one of those things where you know that if you say that to a certain group of people, they'll totally get it of why why you'd want that to happen. And so I think in a way, um, finding a blogging community felt like finding something that fitted that part of my personality and that part of where my thoughts were that I hadn't found before maybe. Mm, gosh, that I do want that to happen. Okay. Um, all right. So, and then what gave you the confidence to think that you could start one? Because I do think there's, there's one thing to sort of find the community and to see that people are doing this. And there's another thing to say, well, I'm just going to jump into the fray and, and, you know, and carve out my own spot. I think complete naivety and just um, and pure enthusiasm, maybe, of just, uh, I'm not sure now that I would necessarily see that and think, oh, I could do it. But I think maybe maybe I was at an age and a point in my life where I just thought, yeah, no, I'll do that. That, look, that looks like really good fun. I think in some ways, actually, it was maybe almost a need to do it and that I'd got, um, how old were my children when I, st- uh, may- I think I'd got a five-year-old and a two-year-old or a three-year-old. And there was maybe a need for me to try and reestablish what my identity was around that as well. And it was a good place to do that. Mm-hmm, right. Having your own space and your own, like, it's almost yeah. like a reemergence of your own self after yes. that sort of babyhood period. Yeah, yeah exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I found that to be true as well. And I'm wondering, so now all these years later, can you talk a little bit about what you feel like blogging has done for you? Because I think that, 
you know, people sort of feel like, well, I'm going to write all this stuff and sort of, you know, toss it out into the wind on the internet. Mm. And what's the point? You know, like, why would I do that? Um, it's sort of self-indulgent and it's navel gazing, <laughs> you know, it's navel gazing and who cares what I've had for breakfast this morning and what I'm thinking about and, you know, whatever. Um, so, but, but there is so much to be gained and in, in, in the yeah. long term. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about what it's done for you in the long term. Well, I guess that's bringing up two thoughts for me. And one is that when when we first started blogging, not many people that I knew were blogging. And so it actually felt like quite a strange thing to be doing. And I remember um, when my son first started school, going to meet um, a group of their mums. And um, one of the mums said to me, she's actually ended up being a really good friend. She said to me, do you write the Flossy Tea Cakes blog? And I actually had this moment of thinking, gosh, should I deny it? <laughs> and <laughs> It felt like such a, as you said, it felt like such an egocentric, self-obsessed, weird thing to be doing. <laughs> and um, and I, th I think that's changed a lot since then. And it's become much more commonplace. And, and actually, that was entirely projection, because I don't think any of the people around that table were looking at me like they were thinking that. But that was how I felt about it. And but in terms of what it's done for me, I think... Um, that most of what's come out of it has been fairly organic and that I never started it. And I've never, I don't think at any point really been writing at it, writing it, thinking, what can I get out of this? It's been more um, of a self-propelled organic thing than that, where it's just been something that I've wanted to do. And maybe because it's authentic and I'm not thinking too much about it, I don't know um, that, that things have naturally come out of that if that makes sense. Yeah. Maybe, so has it motivated you to complete projects or has it helped you to yeah. reflect on your progress or your state of mind or, you know, has it helped you make friends that you, you know, or I don't know, has it, have there been tangible things that you can point to? I mean, we'll talk later about this book, but has it, do you feel like it's led to opportunities, business opportunities? I think all of the things you've said, actually, yeah, no, it's, um, I'm just trying to think. Yeah, I, I think certainly in terms of um, propelling projects along, it's really motivating to say, I'm doing this and then, um, and then actually be able to get to the point where you can share it with people. Um, and I, I always have a slight thing of that once it's photographed, it feels real. Um, and it's, it's, it's really nice to be able to put it on there and know that it's because um, I think I guess I think of my blog as a diary and it feels like it's actually been entered into the diary once it's been photographed and it's finished. So in terms of doing things, yes, that's very much kind of um, propelled me along. Yeah, so I can't ever take pictures of works in progress and post them. Like you'll see on my blog, there are never works in progress. Is that because you're always working on it? Is it because it's for a book or a pattern and so you no, wouldn't do that? No, it's because once I photograph it, it's done. So yes. <laughs> if I take a picture of it and I put it on the blog, then in my mind, it's finished and I can never work on it again. So yes. so no, if I, I do that, like I will not return to it. So I've done it a few times in the past and it totally ruins like the mojo. Like I'm just like, oh, I'm done with that one. But even if it's only halfway finished, like I'm just, I don't know, something mentally shifts. So I have to have that like 
that the like waiting, you know, like the blog is yes. like it's like it has to be out there waiting for me when it's completely finished. <laughs> I get to take the picture, and it's like the reward or something. I don't yes. know. It's like a I mental. I can so relate to that actually. With <laughs> even with things like that, if I I'll be have enjoyed going to yoga classes for months, and then as soon as I tell people, oh, I go to yoga classes, it's it's that just disappears then yeah. <laughs> and it's like oh well I've, I'm, I'm a person who now goes to yoga classes because I've told people about it so I don't need to actually do it yes oh gosh I know with the mental games we play with ourselves so yeah no it's so, so strange yeah isn't it? <laughs> so earlier you said that um that you don't know that you would jump in and start now and I think that that's an interesting concept because so a lot has changed here we are in 2018 we have social media um, all over the place. Blogging mm. has really shifted enormously. And the reasons why people blog has shifted enormously. Yeah. Um, so what, why do you feel like it would be harder now to start? I think possibly to do with age, that the age I was at then, I think when you're younger, you're maybe less self-conscious and less reserved in some ways and more... Um, I don't know. That's a really good question. I'm not sure I've thought about that before. Um, I don't know. I, gu I guess I see a lot more in the news and hear on, um, I listen to a, um, a podcast called Woman's Hour that's on Radio 4. Um, uh -huh. yeah. It's a BBC thing. I don't know whether you get that over here. Um, but over there, sorry. Um, but recently they've been doing a thing about people being trolled. And so you hear about all those things. And I think it would, if I wasn't already on social media and writing a blog, I think it would feel feel a far scarier place than the experience I've had it, of, of it, sorry. Um, I've been really lucky in the 10 years that I've been doing this to have mainly only had really, really good positive experiences from it. Yeah. So in other words, if you didn't know a lot about it and you only heard about it, it sounds scary. Possibly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. No, I think that that's possibly true. I mean, you know, I think that that is true. Like my mom, for example, she's not on Facebook and her impression of Facebook from reading the New York, New York Times is a really bad impression. Yes. Yeah. Um, and she thinks like Facebook's a really bad thing. And I'm like, really, there's a lot of good things you can get out of being on this platform. But she's like, you know, Facebook's terrible. I'm like, OK. Yeah. <laughs> so. no, that's interesting because I think my mom had said to me once, I'm I'm not sure how right it feels to share things online. But actually, in some ways, it's just a new format of doing that because poets and novelists have been sharing parts of themselves in a in a format that had become established for years and years. And so may, maybe it's just that we're having to get used to doing it on a new platform. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but it, it, it does get quite a bit of um, press about being bad for you and being scary yeah. and harmful. And so if you've only really sort of taken that stuff in, it can um, seem like it's not a good thing. Um, I th yeah, I think there's also a part of me as well, though, that does now think, actually, I wish the internet had stopped where it was about 10 years ago. <laughs> and that may, may, maybe I'm, I'm not 100% sure I'm on board with the fact that all of the things we're using are good for us. Um, particularly when they're used by teenagers, um, things like Instagram and um, I think people collect streaks on Snapchat and stuff. I've never used Snapchat, but I've, I've heard about good things about it where I've kind of thought, actually, is that right? I'm not sure how much it's adding. Maybe it would have been nice if we could have just stopped the clock 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's definitely harmful, some harmful stuff for sure. Yeah, collecting streaks. I haven't um, done that on Snapchat, but I have heard about it. And you're right. Like, yeah. I do fall into that category of like, I've read about this and it doesn't seem good. <laughs> so <laughs> 
<laughs> yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Totally. Right. I, I do fall into that. So, um, yeah. I want to take a minute now to talk with our sponsor, Eddie and Marion, and the founder of Eddie and Marion, Ginevra Martin. I'm Ginevra, and my business is Etty and Marion. So I'm a textile designer, and I'm really inspired by the modern quilting movement and making fabrics for modern quilters. I like to challenge myself to make something I haven't seen before. So hopefully other people haven't seen before and it's fresh and actually modern for modern quilters. They're generally screen printed. I hand screen print, but I also do design digital print fabrics for printing via spoon flower. And I'm interested to hear a little bit about sort of how you see yourself fitting into the industry. Um, so tell me a little bit about sort of how you see yourself positioned. Okay, so... I see myself as um, relatively small and just starting up, but also independent. So big small actually has advantages. I am doing small print runs, maybe 10 meters, five meters, something like that. I don't have to think like a large company that's doing the minimums of thousands of meters. And so when I'm designing fabrics, I don't have to think about whether 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 people will like that fabric. So I can really explore new things and try, as I said, designs that I haven't seen before. Right. Okay, neat. And where are you based? I'm in Sydney, Australia. Okay, great. And how long have you been doing this for? I guess I've been doing it off and on for a number of years. I studied textile design and I did a diploma of textile design at, I think you'd call it college, but it's called TAFE here. And it's a very practically oriented course. My fabrics are only available in my online store or if I go to an event myself in Sydney. Okay, great. But so. you do ship internationally. Yes, definitely. Okay, great. And tell us where your online store is so people can go and check out these totally unique fabrics. So it's at ettyandmarion.com. That's E-T-T-I-E-A-N-D-M-A-R-I-O-N.com. And who are Eddie and Marion? Um, that's a reference to when I was a child, my favorite thing was making marionettes. So it's the word marionette reversed and changed around. Perfect. Thank you so much, Eddie and Marion. And now back to my conversation with Florence. Um, so you're you're kind of uh, one of the relatively rare sewists who equally enjoys sewing clothes and making quilts. Yeah. And I do think that that's pretty rare. I mean, there's there are people who do it, but it's not a lot of people. A lot. Most people are either really into garments or they're really avid quilters and making clothes scares them. Um, And so I wonder if you can sort of talk about what leads to that divide and and what you think could help close it. Oh, well, I I think there's a lot of transferable techniques. I mean, in with dressmaking, um, because you're used to easing, um, a sleeve into a, a sleeve cap into into the sleeve, you automatically don't feel scared of curves when it comes to say sewing a quilt. By then, I guess, um, and so I think there's quite a few transferable skills where you think actually no, I can do that, so I can do the other thing. Um, mm-hmm. But and I th- I think there's a kind of certain amount of when you've 
spent a long time in one, the other one feels like a real palate cleanser. Mm -hmm. And also, I guess that um, a lot of the time it's, it's so lovely to sew your own clothes and they're so quick to finish as well compared to a quilt. And so I'll sometimes work on a quilt for months and months and then I'll make something and think wow that was finished in a day that's absolutely amazing um but then when you go back to the quilt there's always that thing of oh but this is always going to fit me (laughs) and that and that's um so I think there's things for them on both sides um and they feel like really nice things to switch to switch between to keep your energy up so that you're not you don't end up feeling uninspired and bogged down because it's you only need to spend a bit of time doing the other thing to want to go back to whatever it was you left behind. Yeah, that's a great point. It's a palate cleanser and sort of helping you to get through maybe a project that has bogged you down or made you feel like, oh, I just don't even want to work on this one anymore. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. no, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. All right. I like that. Um, And so I was going to say that, you know, we I think we first sort of started emailing maybe back and forth. um, And maybe you'll remember this when um, Alex Veronelli at at RFL Threads, um, I had written a blog post several years back. And um, he was, it was about his, um, his a social media persona, I guess, and about um, some, what I perceive to be some sexist tweets and um, Facebook updates and things like that. And then also a a campaign at Quilt Market in which um, they were having uh, designers, you know, the RFL designers sit on his lap and have their yeah. photo taken in the booth, in the RFL yeah. booth, and, and then hashtag them as Ara girls. Mm-hmm. Um, and anyway, I had written an article on my blog saying that I thought that this was pretty sexist. And and you had um, written a piece on Flossy Tea Cakes in support of my piece. And, um, and, and I really appreciated that. And <laughs> Um, because there was a lot of flack. It, it kind of, people had a strong feelings on both sides. It was that yes. kind of article. Yeah, yeah. No, I, th- I think I partly, I don't think I would ever normally necessarily write a blog post of my own accord on something that controversial. I think my my approach would have possibly been to go to them directly about it. And the reason why I didn't do that is I think when they initially responded to you, on social media. So having seen your blog post, it looked like they weren't going to do anything about it. And so I wanted to show support over that. But in a way, I think it's um, it taps into something that worries me slightly about the internet as well, though. I don't know whether you've read um, John Ronson's book, So You've Been Publicly Shamed. I've heard, I haven't read his book, but I did hear quite a long interview with him about his right. book and about sort of what it's about. Um, and I, I do want to read it. It's on my list. Yeah, no, it's a, it's an amazing book, um, and but also really, really scary. And I think so in some ways it, it uh, it's, that's kind of come out as a bigger picture since then. At the time, I don't think it was forming as a bigger picture um, that. But I guess one of the things that I think is really important about that is for the person to be able to put it right and for us to be able to m- make mistakes on the internet and for people to see that they're human and that they that you need the space to be able to put it right. And maybe for, I don't know, I just wondered whether it hadn't occurred to him quite how it looked, all of those things and whether 
Yeah, absolutely. And I want to say too that he did, they did put it right. So yes. he apologized, yes, he posted a public apology. The president of the company from Italy wrote me a note saying he was going to post a public apology on Facebook, which he did. <laughs> he then came to my town for a, uh, an event at my local quilt shop and invited me to come. I came and we shook hands and they also erased all of the Ara Girl um, images. Yeah, which was fantastic. And yes. they did it really quickly, Really quickly, they? as well yeah. as all of the sexist tweets and mm -hmm. Facebook updates. And there hasn't been any since then. Um, and I just give him a lot of credit because yeah. he changed, you know, he fixed it. And um, there's a lot to be said for forgiveness and for, um, for being able to realize that that wasn't the right way to do this. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, yeah. And it's, I kind of feel grateful that we're in the community that we're in where that was actually able to happen and that there, there weren't actually any, I hope negative, it, that there wasn't a negative impact on their business because actually there's so many um, court shop owners who are stocking their thread and everything where it would have impacted on them as well. And um, and so, yeah, I, I guess it's um, it's a it's a funny thing, that one, because I felt like I couldn't not comment on it. But I also feel slightly uncomfortable about it and relieved that it turned out the way the way that it did and yeah. that it had a good resolution. Yes, I agree with you 100%. So that was an interesting thing. And I, I do give Alex and RFL credit for the change. Yeah, well, well done you for actually making a change, though, because that's an amazing thing to have actually had that much of an impact and um, that, you know, they, they've completely altered their whole marketing campaign around, you know, as a result of that. That yeah, post yeah, it was you speaking was, up is amazing. It was a good was, thing. Like I think yeah. in the end, it was a good thing, despite the fact that there are still um, at least two people. Probably there's more than two. There's a several people who um, who don't talk to me as a result of it. Oh gosh! Oh no! <laughs> They're super super angry. We're really angry and are still angry. So that's okay. Um, oh no, that's hard. Yeah, it's okay. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> I have a thick skin. Has that, has that made you feel wary of bringing? Because it doesn't seem like it has. I kind of you always feel like someone who speaks out when you see injustice or something that doesn't feel right where someone isn't being treated fairly or um I've, no I've noticed with the um the thing recently about you saying about the dmc threads um, oh yes right not, um, so you you seem like it hasn't put you off it doesn't bother me. I mean, I don't want to burn bridges for sure um, or make enemies with people, but, um, you know, people are going to disagree and yeah. I'm always open for conversation and I have learned a lot over the time. So, you know, in the beginning, I, I'm not trained as a journalist. As I said, I was a history major <laughs> um, and I was trained as a teacher. So I yeah. have learned a lot over time, especially since Alec, that, that article about Alex was really a, my first really big story. Um, yeah. And so I've learned a lot over time about how to quote sources and how to make sure that everybody's voice is heard properly. And, you know, so yeah. I've, I've um, got done a lot of training of myself <laughs> to be yeah. a more proper journalist. Um, and that's been a good process. So I feel like I'm better equipped now and I'm always learning. Um, so that's been good. But, um, but yeah, there are people who to do get angry and, and that's okay. Like I'm okay. Yeah. Yes, I'm okay yeah. with it. I don't um, take it personally, and um, I, I'm I'm not bothered. <laughs> I'm not bothered by it. It's fine with me. Um, so it's worth it's worth it to me. So 
Um, All right. So I want to talk a little bit about English paper piecing because that's a really important part of your story. And Mm -hmm. it's a craft that I totally love to do myself and have loved to do for years now. And so I know that there are people who are listening who've never tried it and don't really even understand what it is. And so for them, can you just sort of give the elevator speech like, what's English paper piecing? (laughs) What is this? So English paper piecing is where you take um, paper shapes and then wrap fabric around those paper shapes and you can either base them to the paper with um, thread or with glue and then you sew the shapes together and then at the end you take the paper out but I guess what's unique about English paper piecing is it means you can tackle some quite difficult shapes to put together that may be quite hard to do on a machine Um, so I don't know hexagons and octagons and diamonds and well, actually, pretty much any shape you can tackle with English paper piecing. In my own patterns, I design all sorts of shapes that don't have names. Um, and so there's something about it where you know when you do it that it's going to turn out right and that the pieces will fit together. And I quite like that about it. Right. I lo- what I love about it, too, a few things. One is that you don't have to cut accurately. Okay, yeah. Right. So when yeah. you're quilting, if you are piecing conventional piecing on a machine, you have to cut those pieces accurately. Yeah. yeah okay. We'll see, yeah. You seam allowance. Yeah. And then exactly. And then you need to sew them with a perfect quarter inch seam if mm-hmm. you're going to get those corners to match. Yeah. I am terrible at both of those things. I do not cut anything in a straight line and I'm terrible at sewing things in a straight I don't do that's why right. I sew stuffed animals. Yeah. Okay. Everything's I don't <laughs> do any of that. So um so when you English paper piece, you don't have to worry about either of those things. So mm-hmm. that's fantastic for me. Yeah, no, it's li- yeah, no, it's liberating, Ugh, isn't it? You can just cut roughly around things. That's great. And yeah. and it's all hand sewn, so you can take it in your purse and take it wherever you're going. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's the really lovely bit about it, actually. And you can break it down into blocks so that you've always got something small and manageable to take with you. It's, yeah, no, it, it comes everywhere with you me. You can do it in the car. You can do it while you're waiting at the orthodontist. You can do it, yeah. you, know, you can just do it in the evening on the couch. You can do it on the beach. You can, it's just great. I yeah. love, so to me, there's so many good things about English paper piecing. And you, as you said, you can get really fantastic results with this very simple process of folding the fabric around paper. Um, so you've written this book and I want you to tell us, first of all, tell us the name of the book so that we can go check it out. It's coming out. It's actually not quite out yet. It's coming out in the U.S. at the end of May. This is May 2018. And then in the U.K. at the end of June. But it's available now on Amazon for pre-order. So people can head over there now and Amazon pre-order is important for book sales. So please go over and do that. Tell us (laughs) the name of the book. Yeah, tell us the name of the book. It's called um, The Flossy Tea Cakes Guide to English Paper Piecing. Okay, cool. And so this book is really cool because... um, So and I've gotten a a PDF copy, so I've kind of seen Mm -hmm. the, the way that it works. It is not your typical craft book, right? So like I have other English paper piecing books because I love English paper piecing. And most of them, um, it, you know, basically like most craft books, it's a series of projects. It tells you how to, you know, do this one and then do this one and to make all these different blocks and make these different quilts. Okay. So it's got some of that, but this book is really unique. It's almost like a love story. It's like an ode. To English That's such a lovely way of describing it. Yeah. Thank you. So, so tell us, like, it's got three sections. So, what's the first part about? Okay. So, the first part is 
it's a little bit of the history of English paper piecing and a bit of the psychology and um, it's it's basically all the things where you know when you're you're standing at your cutting table cutting things out and then you're sewing them together and you're wrapping the papers and things it's basically all the thoughts that kept on drifting in and out of my mind while I was sewing where I um yeah, have been given the opportunity to basically go away and research those things. And, and actually, there were certain things where I was thinking, is this just a kind of Florenceism or is this an actual thing? And I think what the book gave me the opportunity to do was actually go away and research all of those things. And I've read so many amazing studies and things. And sometimes I found out that something wasn't quite the way I thought. And other times, um, sorry, that's a bit vague. <laughs> um, and, other, and other times I was um, thought, oh, wow, no, there's a whole substance behind what I've been thinking um, that can be backed up by kind of neuroscientists and um, and psychologists and lots of clever people. <laughs> so, okay. So give us some examples of both of those things. So I know that there's like um, some parts of it about like why human beings love symmetry and like why we love, you know, repeats, for example, like why we crave having those things in um, in a design. Um, so talk yeah, a little bit so about this, some, some specific examples. I guess um, while I've been English paper piecing, one of the things I'd noticed about that is that the patterns I always designed and the patterns I was seeing from other people always had a huge amount of symmetry in them. And then the way people were fussy cutting the fabrics that went on those designs was had you know a certain amount of people were enjoying cutting the same portion of fabric out and getting it to repeat over and over again to kind of create a kaleidoscope effect and so I had a feeling that humans were drawn to symmetry and when I looked into that 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 sounded like it was true it's um I think it creates a, a sense of balance and harmony and order and um if you look at I don't know the way um formal gardens are planned or the way a child draws their perfect house. It's, you know, a door in the middle and then windows to either side and a path going down the middle and a lawn to either side. And it seems like it's come to represent in our minds stability and endurance and qualities like that. Um, but then one of the things I found was, so I'd gone in thinking humans just love symmetry. But actually, one of the things that I found out when I was researching was that humans do love symmetry, but they also like a really small amount of disruption added into that symmetry. And um, and that's what keeps our, us, inter us interested and wanting to look at it. And so if you think of those, um, those quilts where, I don't know, where you have 16 repeating blocks and they do 15 of those blocks all in the same color and then the 16th block will be in a different color or there'll be something different about it it's always those things when they pop up in my feed in instagram where i end up spending even longer looking at them because of that slight asymmetry within all that symmetry um and so that was one of those things where i'd set off with one thinking one thing and kind of found out something slightly different yeah and yeah. you know it reminds me like um they, they always say that like symmetry is a big part of looking at um uh, of face, you know, a beautiful face. Oh, like yeah. when we look at faces, which ones we consider to be beautiful are the ones that are the most symmetrical, but then um, having a birthmark or a beauty mark, you know, on one cheek is also even more beautiful, right? Like, yes, so where you can't stop looking at the person's face and that's what makes them, mm -hmm. that's what makes you adore them slightly. And actually one, one interesting thing that didn't end up making it into the book was that 
one study that I'd read linked the um, the level of symmetries in men's bodies to the number of sperm produced. And so from an evolu- evolutionary point of view, we seem programmed to, uh, to, to there's, there must be something there where we're actually, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We're actually like more virile. If, yes, we're more virile <laughs> if we are perfectly symmetrical. My yeah, no, goodness. It's, it's, it's incredible. Um, but yeah, I, d- I don't think they're saying, you know, that you can't have a, a dip <laughs> on one cheek because of that. But I just think that's really yeah. interesting. That yeah. We're actually starting off from that place where we are, we're so, you know, obviously, obviously attuned to that in certain ways. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so you get to do all of this sort of deep looking and you do historical research of some of the first, um, you know, or the earliest examples of English paper piece quilts that we still have um, in the historical mm-hmm. record and all kinds of neat um, looks back. And and then the second portion of the book, you feature other artists who are doing unique work in English paper piecing. Yeah. And that bit was, um, that bit was hard, actually, because I'd, I'd got a list of about 20 people who I actually wanted to feature. And when we'd first planned out the book, I'd thought, oh, 128 pages, that's loads. And actually, it was, um, it was, you don't want the book to end up feeling cramped. And so I ended up not covering nearly as many people as I'd wanted to um, with that. Um, But I was really pleased with the ones that I did get to include in the end, they were gorgeous. Okay, great. So that's like inspiration, eye candy for people to sort of see Mm -hmm. the potential here yeah okay yeah and then what is the last portion the last portion is well um the last portion is um a really kind of meaty techniques section and then there are just a few patterns so there's one quilt pattern and three rosette patterns um because i wanted to give something for people to use as a a springboard um but in some ways i didn't want to make the book too many patterns because I wanted to give something that people could actually take to bed with them and read um, because I guess that's what I'd wanted in a book was, you know, some something that when I'd finished sewing myself, I could actually carry on obsessing over it while, you know, while I'm lying in bed at night. And that's that's what I'd wanted to read. Was that a hard sell? Because I feel like, I don't know how that, well, tell us how this book came about and then we'll f- figure that part out. So, um, so did you, did you pitch this book or were you approached by a publisher? How did this book deal come to be? So um, an acquisitions editor at F&W, um, Amelia Johansson, I think she's now with um, Martingale or is it Martindale or Martingale? Um and she contacted me and invited me to write a book about English paper piecing. And they wanted between te- 10 and 12 quilts in the book. Um, because, of course, they did. Because that's what craft books <laughs> I'm sorry, that's what craft yeah, books no, are. Okay. Yeah. Um, and I, there was something about the tone of her email where I felt really enthusiastic to work about her. W- sorry, work with her. But I knew also almost instantly that I wasn't the right person to write that book. Um, for me, 10 or 12 quilts that are English paper pieced, it's really slow because it's all done by hand. And yes. that's a lifetime's work, not oh my a year's gosh. work. Especially, <laughs> especially for you, Florence, because your work, I will say, is extremely fine. Like it's, oh, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, for those of you who are listening, you know, if you've seen, <laughs> like it's 
beautifully, beautifully executed. It's extremely finely done. It's not, there's no slapdash or, you know, nothing is sloppy or quickly done. So um, yes, that would be a lifetime for you. Yeah. <laughs> to so, uh, and I, I kind of felt like if I'd committed to the deadline, I knew I would do it. But A, I might kill myself doing it. And B, I didn't think I'd ever sew again if I did actually do that. Because for me, it would have... Um, I'm just in awe of people who can do that. But for me, it would have totally taken the joy out of it because part of the joy is how slow it is for me and that there aren't that many pressures around that bit of the um, uh, around that bit of the sewing. And I guess also I would have I would have killed myself doing it and I still wouldn't have had the book that I'd really wanted at the end of it. So and there are so many amazing pattern books already out there for EPP like um Willine Hammerstein. I don't think she actually does EPP. I think hers is actually sewn with a running stitch. Um, but it, it uses shapes that are um, in that. And um, Sharon Burgess, Lillabelle Lane, has got a really good book on it as well. Um, so it felt like there were some really good pattern books already there or coming there. Okay. So you got this email, you were like, yes, but no. And then what? Okay. And then <laughs> yes, what? Here's something completely different I'd like to so, do. So, I mean, there's there's different things that happen in that moment, right? And I I often talk about, um, and I have a blog post that I wrote about this that I, that I often bring back up about being your own agent. And what I mean by that is, um, so there, there's like, this is like a turning point moment, right? So you can either just write back and be like, yeah, no, I don't really want to do that. Um, yeah. Or you can say, well, what do I really want to do? Here's an opportunity yes. for me. And if I was my own agent, like if I had an agent sitting next to me at this moment, she would say to me, okay, here's how we're going to package what you can do and send it back to them and pitch something to them of what you do have and what you are able yeah. to do. Um, and so you, since you don't have your agent sitting there, you can, you, you know, you can sort of get into those shoes and be your own agent and do it. Um, so is that what you did next? Yeah, no, it was, um, I wrote back with an email just, um, basically laying out all the things that were in my head of I'd love a book that talked about this, this and this and this. And it was actually a really long list. And um, and I went back to her really thinking that she'd probably come back and say, I'm really sorry, but no. But and at the same time, what do you have to lose, right? Because if she yes. said no, then okay. I mean, right, yeah. you weren't going to do it anyway. So yes, exactly. So it, there was an element of that where I kind of thought I can't do the book they're asking me to do. And so what's what would be wrong with suggesting the book I'm desperate to do that's been bubbling away in me all this time and so I was really surprised I got a really lovely email back saying that sounds fantastic I need to put it to the team can you um do a page plan for it and when she said a page plan she meant um a really full page plan so every single page planned out what I wanted to be on it even things like how many photos would be on those pages and things. And at the time, I kind of thought, gosh, that's actually, it's, take, it's taking it on a level. <laughs> Can I actually do this thing I've said I want to do? Um, but I, and I was feeling slightly apprehensive about it. And then when I sat down to do the page plan, I thought, oh, it'll take, I don't know, a day or two. Actually, it took about an hour and a quarter to get most of the bones of it down there. And it flowed out so easily. And I always think- page plan is- 
I yeah, think that sorry. that's such a good sign. Like, I just think like, I, and I haven't heard of somebody having to do a page plan that might just be, you know, the way that they do things. But I have heard of people having to do, you know, usually it's like a table of contents and maybe the first chapter yeah. or something like that. But either way, um, how, if you can sit down literally and just like write your whole table of contents in five minutes, that's such yes. a good sign, you yeah. know? Yeah, exactly. So hearing from you that you could do it, what you thought would be a few days or a day, you could do in an hour. It's like, okay, then you know, yeah. you know? Yeah. And I, I think in some ways it really um, tied me to the project and made me feel quite invested and committed to it at that stage where I, I was suddenly had gone from, oh, how nice. They've asked me to write a book to, oh gosh, I'm desperate to write this book. Um, and so, yeah, and I can see why they wanted me to do that as well, because I think it was quite a, a different kind of book from the one they were used to publishing. And so I can see why they wanted to know what, what was actually going to go in it. Yeah, I give them a lot of credit for taking that risk, honestly. Oh, huge um, amount. Yeah. Is this, I know it's F&W. Is there a specific imprint? Um, it's the quilting company. Okay. All right. Yeah, I guess they've merged everything now into the quilting I think we start. Yeah, when I signed my contract, it was um, it was going to be published under Fonz and Porter, but it's been merged. So it's the I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I see. Okay, yeah. Things have changed there. Um, okay, cool. So that that's great, and um, I'm excited for your book. I can't wait to actually get the actual Thank co you. copy of it. Um, it. It's exactly the kind of um, thing. It's the kind of book that I think needs to be published now. Frankly, like I think that there are so many patterns online, and frankly so many free patterns online. Yeah. It's just so, you know, the landscape has really changed the way that we consume and access craft media has changed so yes. much yeah. over the last, since we started blogging over the last 10 years. And I think that in order for somebody to want to buy a book, there's got to be something compelling about it that makes it different from what you can get yeah. on, on Pinterest. I mean, it's just got to yeah. be different. Um, and what you've created from what I've seen on the PDF version of the book um, and what you've talked about it is significantly different. It is a body of work that is cohesive, that is in-depth, that gives you much more to think about and chew on um, for somebody who's really interested in English paper piecing. Um, and so yeah. it's worth I'm buying. I'm hoping so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's worth buying and, I, and worth Thank keeping. You know, that's the other piece of it. It's worth buying and worth keeping. So I think that that's great. And I, and I give them kudos to your editor for, for going to bat for you and, um, and taking yeah. a risk to do it and to do something different. So oh, yeah, and I think that was the other thing I was really lucky with is that I was, you know, when you've been writing your own blog for so long and you're not used to being edited, um, <laughs> true, and, true, and, and true. Just horrif <laughs> yeah, horrified by the idea of being edited. And I was so incredibly lucky with my editor, um, Jodie Butler, because I was well aware that I might give it to her and she would want to, you know, see that it just wasn't going to be right and want to tear it apart. And actually, she just edited it so sensitively. So I, I feel really lucky on how much free reign they've given me, really. That's great. Awesome. Well, congratulations to you. And I want to talk just a little bit about your family, um, specifically about your your husband, because you <laughs> have a really interesting other part of your life, um, which is that your husband, who you met in college, and, and what is mm -hmm. his name? It's Ian. Ian. So um, he is an app designer, and you do some work with him about how much of your time is spent working with him at this point. It's it really varies from week to week. Some weeks I'll work on it pretty much the whole week. Other other weeks very little, um, or half the week. It it's our weeks are 
we tend to fit around each other and depending on what work commitments we've got with different things. And, um, and that's really nice about it. Actually, it's really flexible. Okay. So tell us a little bit about the apps that he works on and that you work on with him. Yeah. So people can check those out too. They're called um, Squeebles and it's a range of educational apps for, um, prime. well, we call them primary school children over here, but I guess it's elementary school and um, it's, it's basically uh, for children age five to 11. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. And they cover things like times tables. Um, so we also have a spelling app where you can enter your children's spelling words for the week, record them in your own voice. And then the children are tested the on them and it feeds into a reward system where they then earn turns on a mini game um, and they collect the squeeble characters who each have their own personalities and things like that. And we've got, um, I think it's 11 apps in the series now. Um, And so, yeah, we, that's what we spend the rest of our time working on. And it's, it's really nice actually, because I, um, I feel like it's a really positive if, if if children have to be on a screen, then it feels like a positive way to be spending time on a screen. So um, yeah, I enjoy working on them. Okay, great. So um, I have kids and I have a seven-year-old. Um, so we haven't started spelling words yet, but it's going right. to come soon, um, as well as times, tables, fractions. It's all right around the corner. So, <laughs> so I'll have to send you some codes for the apps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so Squeebles, go check them out. And they're in the app store. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Yeah, they, they're sold through um, Apple and um, Amazon and Google Play. Okay, yeah, per- sorry, Google okay. App Store. perfect. So people can go see those too. That's the other create other half of your creative yeah. uh, projects, creative and tech projects besides <laughs> Flossie Tea Cakes. So, um, and I want to get to your recommendations. So you've got um, three things to recommend today. And um, one of them is a blog, uh, and that is Cup of Joe, which I have read a little bit, like here and there, I'll, you know, hop over from a link from Facebook that somebody, okay. you know, recommends or something, but you are a really faithful reader. So tell us what it is and why you like it. Um, I've read it, I think pretty much since she, fairly soon after she started. And so I feel like I've really followed her journey and watched her grow as a vlogger to where she's now employing other people. And they have a really nice mix of, um, politics and um, culture and books and then they kind of do some really really delicious frivolous things like they have um they have a column called beauty uniform where people go on and talk about what makeup they love wearing <laughs> and um and which hair products work for them and everything and I just really love the the mix that she's got on there of serious and weighty and actually quite frivolous and she also her commenters are amazing I, it's the it's the kind of I guess the blog where most I'll go and read through every single one of the comments because they always you know talk about such interesting things and um it almost feels like a second blog in its own rights the in, in its own right the comments section so it's almost like a smart magazine where yeah. smart people are also like interacting with the content yeah yeah no yes I guess it does feel like that yeah okay great that's a good one. Okay. Um, and then you have a book. Um, it's called How to Break Up with Your Phone by Catherine <laughs> yes. Price. Um, I um, I actually pre-ordered this and got it the day it came out. And it wasn't that I was spending hours and hours and hours on my phone or anything like that, but I had a sense of it 
me not always using it in the way that I wanted to. You know, when you go on and you think, I'll just check this for five minutes and then suddenly half an hour later, you're still actually on there. And I hadn't, and I, and I just thought, actually, I'd kind of like to change the way I'm using it slightly. I, I want all those really useful things that are still on there. Um, but when I go on, say, Instagram, I don't want it to kind of manage to suck me in for an hour <laughs> and things. And um, and actually, what I think is so great about that book is she's, A, she's not telling you to throw it out. And B, since I've read it, I think I've read about 15 novels. Um and it's it's made me realise, gosh, I've actually there's more hours in the day than I thought there were when you're it wasn't that I was spending all the time I've been reading novels on my phone, but it was I think the phone disrupts your attention span. And so the the longer your attention span, the more you are to kind of dig into long term projects like well, not a project, but <laughs> reading a book and things like that. Well, it's you know, it's easier, right? Like it's just easier to put down whatever you're doing and go on yes. Instagram or, you know, and those things are designed to um to give you that dopamine hit, right? Like they're designed yeah. to give you that feedback, the notification, whatever it might be. And um it's just easier to scroll from one app to another really fast. Yes. You know, it's um, yeah. or, or sometimes without even thinking about it, where you've kind of found you've opened the news site without actually having the intention of, oh, I want to go to the news site. It's more that your fingers have automatically been drawn there, yeah. um, which is slightly scary. Yeah. So tell is there a specific tip that she gave you that you've really um, taken to heart or used that you can name? Well, she um, she suggested doing a 30-day plan, which she laid out, but I knew that that wouldn't be for me um, and I probably wouldn't end up following it. So I think it was more actually um, just reading the book that actually made me change my approach to it slightly. So just, um, just like the awareness. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, just being more conscious of what. And I mean, she says things like move all the social media apps from your homepage so that it takes more for your to suddenly find them open. So I've, d I've done things like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I know people who also have moved, like taking email off of their phone. Um, yeah. One thing I did do was turn off all notifications. So nothing on my phone yes. makes any sort of beep or even lights up, like there are no notifications. And I, I do like that a lot. Yeah. No, that's really nice, isn't mm -hmm. it? That's, that's another one of the things she says to do as well. Yeah. It's like, if I want to check you, I will check you. <laughs> yeah. You don't need to come and tell me. Uh, <laughs> so, all right. And you have another podcast to recommend, which is The, Mo the Moth, which I also love The yeah, Moth. Yeah. Do you listen? Um, I haven't listened to it for a little while, but I used to be a faithful listener for a long time. Yeah, I tend to go in and out of phases with things as well like that. But it's um, it's a live storytelling uh, podcast. And I just think the variety and diversity of people you get on there, because it's not it's not famous people, it's just people with a story to tell. Um, and sometimes I think they turn up at these evenings and don't even know that they're necessarily going to tell that story. Um, some of them are very well-developed stories that the moth have worked with the person um, so that they deliver it in a really polished way. But there are other ones that are more open mic sessions and things, I think. And um, I just think you hear from so many different people and they're always kind of fascinating. And sometimes they're really funny and sometimes I'll be in tears by the end of listening to one of them. Yeah. Uh, love it. 
Yeah, totally. I'm not sure I have, I'd be daring enough to get up on stage and tell my story, but I guess if oh, I gosh, worked no. on it, if I worked on it long enough, maybe I wouldn't be, but it does. I don't know. I kind of think of that totally being within your skill set there because this is, you're, you're doing a podcast the whole time. Maybe. So perfect I just ask you. other people questions and yeah, hear their just, stories. I, yeah, I totally. I found that when I was doing my book that actually I realized I love interviewing other people, but actually it's not necessarily my comfort zone to be the one where the attention's on me. Mm-hmm. Although you do have a blog, so you tell your stories on your blog, but there's, yeah. a, there's, you know, you do get to edit it and, um, you know, you have control when you're writing yeah. versus yeah. talking. Yeah, that's true. So, well, Florence, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the Walshy Naps podcast. I really enjoyed thank talking so with you. Having me. It's been really lovely to speak to you as well. Yeah, you too. And you've been listening to the Walshy Naps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Visit my blog, walshynaps.com, where you can sign up for my email newsletter to get the best in sewing, blogging, and small business delivered right to your inbox each week. Today's episode was sponsored by Eddie and Marion. Eddie and Marion is focused on creating truly original fat quarters for the modern quilter. As a small independent screen print and fabric design company, Eddie and Marion can release new fabrics as soon as inspiration strikes. See what's coming next by following Eddie and Marion on Instagram. That's E-T-T-I-E-A-N-D-M-A-R-I-O-N. Thank you so much, Eddie and Marion. And if you enjoy the show, tell a friend about it. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.